Amen. Thanks, Diana. Well, as we approach the fall, uh, many think about what they're going to do. Maybe many of you are thinking about what you're going to do. You're getting into a new rhythm in life. And uh, we do that as a family. And so the other day, we sat down, my wife and I, and started thinking about what we are going to do uh, through Christmas and what our kids are going to do. So activities for them. So our kids, for the first time, six-year-old and three-year-old, are going to play soccer. Big time. Yeah. And uh, I don't think we know what we're getting into. There's a practice once a week and a game every Saturday. Uh, so that's going to be an interesting experience. But we're planning out a lot of things to do for our kids and for us as well, trips and holidays and how all that's going to work. We're doing that as a church, right? We're getting ready to do a lot. We're doing a lot now for the fall. We have uh, next week our fall, our fall series kicks off, and there's lots of things to do around that. We have baby dedications. Uh, we're having a photo booth next Sunday. We're going to launch a few new groups next Sunday. We'll have a men's and women's studies. We're going to do a lot. We have uh, October, our first birthday as a church. Um, we're going to celebrate that. We're going to do a lot. We're going to have baptisms around that. We're going to do a lot as a church. I imagine it's the same with you, right? As I talk to you guys, I know it is, uh, that you have a lot to do. You have a lot that you're planning to do, job, family, school, whatever the case may be. You're planning on doing a lot. Some of you right now have some anxiety because you're thinking, am I supposed to be doing a lot? <laughs> am I supposed to be planning out what I'm going to do? And you can work on that now today. Uh, so be encouraged. Perhaps the most definitive list in the Bible of what to do and not to do is the Ten Commandments. Whether you've gone to church, whether this is your first Sunday, whether you've read the Bible, you've probably heard of the Ten Commandments, right? It's this list of things that we're supposed to do and some other things we're not supposed to do. What you may not be aware of is that there's way more than ten. In fact, Scripture uh, and scholars counted in Scripture, there's about 613 commandments that God gives to the Israelites. And so what we see in there is that what we do is actually really important. Like what we do is important, but what we're going to see this morning is it's not just about what we do, that it starts with who we know, and then that changes everything else. So it's not just about what we do, it's who we know, and that changes everything. Who do we make at the center? So as the Israelites had a lot of things to do, as you have a lot of things to do, I just wanted to pull back before we venture out into the fall and think about who is at the center and what does it look like to make God the center of everything that we do. So we're going to dig into that. You can grab a Bible. If you don't have one, there should be one right in front of you. Grab that, head to Exodus 20. You can also look on the screen with us. This is God speaking to Moses and the Israelites on Mount Sinai, and it says this, verse 1. It says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So to really understand what's going on here, you need to understand the significance of what's been taking place. The nation of Israel has been enslaved for about 400 years. Just to give you some perspective on that, the United States is only 239 years old as a country. And so the nation of Israel has been enslaved for a really, really long time. It was generational for them. So a lot of their people, that's all they knew. They had a slave mentality. They didn't have a king. They didn't have a, a governor to tell them what to do. They were merely slaves and had Egyptian masters. And so as we pick up in Exodus 20, look at verse 2 again. Look at the verse. God tells Moses, 
I am the Lord. That term Lord is very important. It's a concept that God begins in the opening pages and uses till the very end. It's attributed to the Lord Jesus Christ. And what we see about a Lord is that a Lord is someone who owns property. A Lord owns property. They have authority over all of it. They protect it. They own it. And so I remember owning our first house. And we came home one night to our house that we owned. And there were some people in front of our house. And we start to pull in. And they quickly jump into their car and speed off. That's kind of odd, right? Uh, what just happened? Is anything in my house still after that? And it was Christmas time, and so some people in my church thought it would be fun and funny to decorate my house. And they knew when we were going to be gone. They, it was a very deceptive plan. People in church, be careful. <laughs> but it was Christmas time, and so they put fake snow everywhere. They wrapped our door. They thought they were so cute. They put stencil in my yard, silver stencil in my yard, in my bushes, in my tree. It took three months to get that out. And listen, don't get any ideas. If you come to my house, I'll tell you in a second what I'll do. So after we excommunicated them from the church, my wife and I sat down and we just thought about what would it look like if we came home and that was a robber? That was my idea. I just started thinking, what would that look like? Like, what would we do if that happened? And so I'm like, you know, would we just hop out of the car and run and just tackle the guy? Or would we call 911? Like, what would we do? And my wife is just kind of looking at me funny, and she's like, we would call 911. And she's like, wow, what would you do? And I'm like, I would run, and I would tackle that guy. This is my house. You see, with God, all of creation is his house. He owns it. He protects it. He has authority over all of it. It's all his. It's his house. All of creation, everything in it. Scripture says that he's sustaining it, that he's Lord over all creation. So listen, you need to know, especially in our society today, I don't know if you get into politics, but no matter the president, no matter the king back then, no matter the governor, no matter the mayor, no matter the police chief, no matter your boss, that God reigns over all, that he's over it all, that I am the Lord is not something we just glaze over. That means God is over all. It's his house. It's his house. He protects it. It's all his. Look back at the verse. Notice he doesn't just say, I am the Lord. What does he say? He says, I am the Lord, your God. And so God makes it personal. The people he is about to speak to have a relationship with him. They've gone all these years with no king, no direction, but then God, the creator, the God of their ancestors, the God they've heard about, right? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. They've heard about this God. He enters into the equation again, and he says, I am your God, you are my people. I'm the Lord, your God. There's a relationship that exists. And then he reminds them of what he's done on their behalf. Look at verse 2 again. He says, I brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. We talked about this in the summer when we, looked at the, uh, we studied Moses, but Exodus 14 is what he's talking about there. 
It's this incredible event where God parts the Red Sea, that he rescues the Israelites from the Egyptians. And God is recounting that. So he's saying, I am Lord. Here's what that means. I am your Lord. I'm your God. It's personal. And I've already accomplished so much on your behalf. Before he gives them a list of things to do, he tells them who they know. He wants to make that very clear, that he is at the center of everything. So he's about to go into some commandments, but they aren't meant to establish a relationship with God. They already have one. They aren't meant to help them figure out who their God is. He clearly is. He's their Lord He's over everything, he's personal, he's their God, and he's already accomplished so much on their behalf without them doing anything. He rescued them, and God is saying, this is who I am. We have a relationship. They didn't deserve it, but God acted on their behalf anyway. You see, some of you this morning, as you view God, you just see a list of things to do. Like, even right now, I imagine if I asked you, how are you doing in your relationship with God? You would just start thinking through a grid of what you've done, what you need to do in the future. And so I might ask you, like, how are you doing with God? Like, what's that relationship looking like? And you would say things like, well, I went to church this week. I've been doing good on that. I missed last week, so that was a little bit of a bummer. I went to a Bible study in fact, I joined like five Bible studies. You know, I, I'm doing all these things for God. In fact, I went to community group. I served some people. But actually, you know, I slipped up here. I sinned in this area. There's some things I need to stop doing, if I'm honest. There's some things I need to start doing, if I'm honest. And we would see through a grid of what we do. It would be centered on that. And listen, what we do is incredibly important. We're going to see in a few moments in this text that it has lasting effects. What we do is important. But before we get to that list, before God gets to it in the Ten Commandments, he reminds them of who they know. He reminds them of whose they are. He reminds them of what he's done on their behalf. As you think about your relationship with God, do you only see through a grid of what you need to stop doing? what you need to start doing? Have you forgotten who he is to adore him in that? Is it about achievement instead of adoration for you? Has it gotten to that place? Have you been in church so long, going through the motions, doing a lot, that your awe and your wonder of who God is, that he's a personal God, that he's rescued you, that that's all gone away? And that the reality is you're just thinking about what you did this week, what you're going to do next week, what you have to do this fall, and you make a list. Because I know all of us, we make lists. I, I do that, right? Maybe you make them on paper. Maybe you make them digitally in Evernote. Maybe you make them uh, in your head, right? But all of you right now, you have a list. At the very least, it's in your head, and it's things you do and don't do, things you need to stop doing and start doing. The reality is if we stare at that list too long, and some of you have, at some points in my life, I have. If we stare at that list too long, here's what happens. I think three things. The first one is self-righteous satisfaction. We look at that list and we think, I did this. I got completed my list. And we have a self-righteous satisfaction. The second thing, 
we have an overwhelming anxiety. We think there's too much. If we just look at the list, there's too much. Why even try? The third thing, we have a guilt-ridden shame. We say, I can't do this. I haven't done that well on this list. I'm not doing things well. My relationship with God, therefore, is not going well. I'm not doing those things well. I'm a failure, and we have shame. You see, the order of the Ten Commandments, listen, this is the Old Testament. A lot of us think, like, New Testament, nice God. Old Testament, he was a little angry. New Testament, all by grace, through faith. Old Testament, like, wow, you got to do a lot of stuff. No. God is the same yesterday, today, tomorrow. He's the same in the Old Testament, the New Testament. He's the same in the Ten Commandments. He's the same in the Gospels. The order is very intentional. God knew before we can obey a list of things to do, we have to make him the center of our lives. We need to know who he is, whose we are, and what he's done on our behalf. So listen, if you feel stuck, could it be that you need to be reminded, not of your list, but of who he is? Not of what you need to do, but what he's already done. Of whose you are, that he is your God that it's a personal thing, that he's over all of creation, he's over you as your heavenly father. Could it be that if you've gotten off in your list and your relationship with God and you're not even sure what you would say, could it be that you need to be reminded of that? Before you lay out the list in your life spiritually for your plans for the week, we need to be reminded that God is at the center. Otherwise, we need to throw the list out because it doesn't matter if he's not at the center. And that's what we see in this text. Look at verse 3. Verse 3 says this. He says, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. God makes it abundantly clear that he is their one and only God. Why would God need to say that? You think about that? Why would God need to say that? Well, you need to know in that culture that everybody had multiple gods. That in fact, it would be unheard of to see a nation declare and decide, this is our one God. That just didn't happen. And so historically, this was unheard of. And so God is making sure that they know like something, something's about to change. <laughs> Like, I'm not like every other God you worship. Like, this is different. I am to be your one true God. And so instead of having a God for healing, a God for farming, a God for relationships, a God for love, a God for blank, that I am the one God. I'm the one source that you depend on me for everything. So if you've got war issues, you come to me. If you've got physical issues, you come to me. If you have money issues, You come to me. If you have relational issues, you come to me, that I'm going to be your one God. He says, don't get confused that there's one God in heaven, that there's one God on the earth, that there's one God under the earth, right? Any other place you can think of that God is the one God, and he wants to make sure they know. He's at the center of everything, and he is in our lives. He keeps going. The outworking of that is in verse 5. He says, you shall not bow down to them. Or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. So the first thing, especially if you're not new to 
if you are new to scripture or new to this text or new to church, is you see this word jealous. This is a struggle for a lot of us. Maybe it's a struggle for you as you read that. Like, what does that actually mean? It was a struggle for Oprah. This is where she got slipped up. And I think for Oprah, for maybe you today, we get confused with jealous and envious. Listen, God is not saying he is envious of us. He doesn't look down at us and say, wow, like those guys really are killing it. I just wish I could be a part of it more. He's not looking for attention. God is not insecure. He's jealous. He's saying he wants all of them. God today is saying he wants all of you. He doesn't just want one day a week. He doesn't just want one night a week where you go to a Bible study. He doesn't just want your list. He wants all of you, your relationships, your finances, your quiet times in the morning, how you make decisions, how you plan out your fall. God wants all of you. And some of you are thinking, That's, that seems kind of controlling. But if you think about it, if you're married and you have a spouse, what if I said to you, like, hey, would you be okay with your spouse spending time with some other people. In fact, maybe marrying some other people, going off to be with some other people, but she'll still be your spouse. How would you respond to that? If, okay, if you were okay with that, we would have some other issues to talk about, okay? That's another sermon, right? If you're okay with that, that's some other issues, but I would imagine most all of you in here would say, no, right? That's my spouse, So she's mine. He's mine. I'm not going to share him with somebody else. I'm not going to share her with some other people. That's not the way it works. Because you love them, right? You care about them. You want all of them. You don't just want the physical part. You don't just want the emotional part. You want all of them. That's what you said. In case you don't realize it, that's what you said when you said, I do. If you're not married, that's what you're going to say when you say, I do. Like it's a lifelong commitment. You take all of them, they take all of you. That represents our relationship with God the Father. That we're the bride of Christ. And that he is jealous for us because he doesn't want us to, he doesn't want to share us with anybody else. He wants all of you because he loves you. And maybe you're thinking and you look at your life and you're thinking, I don't know that he wants these parts. <laughs> Like, maybe he didn't think about me when he said all these things. Like, maybe he didn't think about me when he sent Jesus Christ. Maybe he didn't think about me when he talks about the bride of Christ. Maybe that applies to some other people. Maybe that applies to my front side and not my back side. Maybe that applies to some things that I'm showing people and revealing to me, but some things that I'm hiding. I don't know if it applies to that. Listen, you need to be encouraged that God is a jealous God, that he wants all of you, the whole spectrum, the good, the bad, the ugly, the public and the private. God wants it all. He wanted that for the people of Israel. If you know Jesus, he wants it for you today, as you are, right where you are. God is a jealous God. It's not controlling. It's the most loving thing he could do. Once we get that, once we grasp whose we are, that he sees us like that, what he's done, he's rescued us, what we do changes. Right? Who we bow down to changes. That's what this text says. 
You don't go bow down to everybody else. You don't start worshiping all these other things. And some of us are looking through our list, because that's what we do, and we're thinking, well, I can check that off. I don't bow down to other things. Like, you won't stumble upon my house and finding me bowing down to my TV. Like, I don't, I don't do that. Maybe you do, but I don't, right? And some of you are thinking, like, I got that one covered. But how many times do we worship things in our hearts and minds just all the time, right? It's those things that we say, if I get this, then I'll be complete. If I get this, then I'll have meaning. If I get this, then we'll do these other things over here. Then I'll be complete. Maybe for you, you're not sure what that is in your life. Um, some things that can be that are pretty obvious is money, power, sex. The idol behind the idol can be meaning, acceptance, approval. Tim Keller, who's a pastor in New York, talks about three things, three components to look through to examine, do I have idols? What are they? The first one is imagination. Imagination, like if you were just to sit around and just let your mind wander, what would you dream about? What would you dream about that would make you happy, that would fulfill you? Does it include God? Or does it include a lot of other things? When I was in college, I remember you would talk to people, maybe some of you college students experience this now, but people ask you, like, what are you going to do after you graduate, right? So what are you going to do? Think about it. Make a list. People ask, like, what are you going to do? What are you going to do after you graduate? And I remember there would be some people that would say, like, I don't know, man. I'm just trying to register for the next semester and not flunk out, right? I'm trying to go to my classes. And then there would be some people that say, like, I'm going to get this internship. I'm going to do this thing. And then there would be some people that had the 10-year plan. Do you know those people? And so they would just stop and think about it, and they would say, man, I'm going to have the high-rise. I'm going to have the Bentley. I'm going to be the CEO, and it's going to be awesome. And 22 years old, like, that's awesome. Look forward to that. I'll keep in touch. I'm starting this church in Phoenix in a few years, so if you could support that. That'd be great. But a lot of us, we imagine things, and in college we do that, in life we do that. Maybe you're uh, thinking about your family, and as you just stop and think, like, we would have vacations like this. Our kids are going to grow up to be like this. My job is going to go like this. We do that short term. We do that long term. And sometimes those things are totally innocent and fine. But sometimes those things reveal an idol in our heart that if those things happen, then we'll be successful. If those things happen, then we'll gain approval. If those things happen, then we'll be complete. So the first thing you need to think through is your imagination. The second thing is where do you spend money? Do you spend money on shopping, entertainment only? Is that all you spend money on? Do you go to that in times of stress for escape? Where do you spend your money do you save all of your money? Do you hoard it? Do you never give it away? Listen, saving is a great thing to do, but if you only hoard it, if you only keep it to yourself, is that revealing an idol of control and, secu and security in your life? You need to think through that grid. How do I spend my money? That reveals who we're worshiping. The third thing is our emotions. Where do your emotions flare up? Like, where do they hit extremes? 
So I know for me, just a couple days ago, I was working on this. I was working on my sermon. And just a peek behind the curtain, I write out everything I'm going to say. So I manuscript my sermon every week. And so it's pretty important that I have these papers. I try to get it in my head. Um, and so I'm doing that this week. I'm kind of jotting down some notes on the dinner table and have my pen, which I hold with a death grip with my kids around because it's shiny and they like it. And I have my pen and I have my manuscript and I'm writing some notes and I get up to go to the bathroom and we're about to go somewhere, we're about to leave. And I come back and no more sermon manuscript. My pen's actually there. You know, it, it tricked me. But my sermon manuscript is nowhere to be found and immediately what welled up in me was an anxiety, an anger to blame my kids, and I, I resisted. At first, I resisted because I thought, you know what, I could have placed it somewhere, and I usually just say they took it, but I don't want to do that right now. And so I just began to search around the house, like, my wife, Jaya, have you seen it? Like, is it over here? Did they take it? What, what happened to it? And I'm just like, I, I need to find this. And there began, the anger came back, and that anxiousness came back. And a few seconds later, my wife walks by the fridge, and my sermon manuscript is on the fridge with magnets. <laughs> and my daughter took her artwork off our fridge and replaced it with my sermon manuscript and had it very nice and neat with magnets on our fridge. So I guess we could all walk by and, and see it. I'm not sure. And I just, my heart sunk in that moment. I just thought, why did I get so angry about that? Why did I get so anxious about that? Could it be that sometimes for me, ministry is an idol? Could it be that sometimes for me, my profession and success is an idol? Listen, I need to prepare my sermon. I need to work hard on it. I need to keep up with it. But if that's the most important thing, if my emotions take over in extreme ways, when my sermon is on the fridge instead of the dinner table, I need to be aware of that in my life. You need to be aware of that in your life. What is that for you? What takes over your imagination? What do you spend your money on? Where do your emotions flare up uncontrollably? It could be an idol in your heart. The Bible calls that a divided heart, that you can't serve that many masters, that you have to choose who is going to occupy the primary place in your heart? The people of Israel had to choose. You and I have to choose. What will occupy our hearts? What will occupy our imaginations? We get one shot at this life. What's going to occupy our heart, our life, our money, our emotions? What is that for you? What is occupying your heart? What is dividing your heart? What's competing for that space? That may be the best question you need to ask all day. What's competing for that space in my life? How is that reflected in what I'm planning to do with my life? This week, this semester, for the rest of your life. What is that for you? We need to be aware of it. We need to tell God what it is. And we need to ask him to give us an undivided heart. Psalm 86. Look at verse 5. He says, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. So I may have lost you in that, so I want you to stick with me 
Uh, here's where we see, I talked about the lasting effects of what we do, what we do matters. Here's where we see that. The iniquity of the fathers is sin. The visit he talks about is wrath. It's not just on them. It's on their children and their grandchildren. Listen, one of the harsh realities of sin, and you know this in your life, we know it in our culture, is that what we do and the evil things we do in particular, they don't just affect us. They affect everyone around us. And they affect generations. We see that theologically, that we have a fallen nature. We're born with that. That's why kids' first word is no. It's because of the sin in the beginning, that we have a fallen nature now. We see it practically, that families deal with cycles and lifestyles of behavior that are damaging. That some of you, you may be in counseling right now, not because of anything you did, but because of what your parents did. Some of you know families that are just, man, it just seems like it keeps going through their kids and through their kids. And maybe you don't agree with that. Maybe you think that seems unfair, but you do know this. It's true that what we do has lasting effects. And so we need to make sure who is at the center of all of that. This wrath specifically is on those who hate God. So in this verse, it's on those who hate God. That's those who persist in unbelief and rebellion against God. It's sin with no acknowledgement of God. What God is saying is that if we don't give him the recognition he deserves, we will suffer. We talked about judgment a few weeks ago, so we won't get all the way into that. But if we don't recognize God as Lord over all, that he reigns over all, that it's his house, that he's a personal God, that he's rescued us, if we refuse to recognize that, that we'll suffer. You see it in our culture today. Things aren't getting better. Right? Newsflash. They're getting worse. Because as a culture, as we continue to turn away from God and turn to our own idols, we don't recognize him as who he is, as whose we are in him, as what he's done on our behalf, that bad things happen, that it has lasting effects. But it doesn't have to be that way. Look at verse 6. It says, but, that's always a great transitional word in Scripture, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. That in that day and our day, God's steadfast love is still available. It's available to the Israelites. It's available to you if you'll love him and keep his commandments. Those two phrases, love me and keep my commandments, are joined together throughout Scripture. Jesus walks Peter through that in the New Testament. You may remember this. He says, Peter, do you love me? He says, feed my sheep. That if you love me, you'll do what I say. First John is a whole book basically designated to that. If, if you understand God's love, it leads to obedience, right? If we acknowledge God, he is Lord over all, he's my God, we have a personal relationship with him, that he rescued me through the cross of Christ, if that's you this morning, you'll love God You'll do a lot of things that he says, and you'll experience his loving kindness through all of that. When you do those things, when you don't do those things, that if that's the path that you choose, if you throw up empty hands of faith and trust in Jesus Christ, even today, you can experience this loving kindness forever, that it doesn't have to be this generational sin and consequences of sin that you have to deal with your whole life, that you can break that chain. You can today. Maybe, maybe that's you. You can break that cycle today by looking to Jesus Christ, that he paid for your sin past, present, and future. 
It's a new paradigm. It's a new way of life. It's loving kindness that you can experience that today. If we kept reading, this list goes on. So we have commandments that, that uh, involve rest, coveting, murder, all kinds of things. Like I said, if you keep reading even past Exodus 20, there's about 613 things to do. And honestly, they're helpful. Like we need to go back and read them. We need to follow them. We need to read our Old Testament. Like that's a good thing to do in your life. I imagine there's lots of things to do. The reality is there's always going to be lots of things to do. As we look at scripture, as you look at your fall, as you look at your life, there's going to be lots of things to do. For our church, there's going to be lots of things to do. I said it, but we're about to celebrate our first birthday as a church. We can fill our schedule with lots of things to do. As we get into the fall, we can, we can absolutely do that. As we get into our second year as a church, we can sit around and say, why don't we have this program? Let's do that. Why don't we have this? Let's do that. Why don't we support this? Let's do that. And we can aimlessly fill our list with lots of things to do. And we can miss God, that he is Lord, that he's God over all, that he reigns over all, that he reigns over us, that he wants our undivided attention, that he's jealous for all of you. We can, as a church, we can do a lot of things, and we can miss who he is, whose we are, and what he has done on our behalf. We're not going to do that. I don't want to do that. And so we need to band together as a church and say, there's a lot of birds flying up. What's the most important one that we need to shoot? Right? Some of you don't hunt, so you, don't, you just miss that, but... We need to think about what we do and who's at the center of all that as a church. I Man, I'm excited about our church because I think we're trying to do that. I'm excited about the fall and the next year because God is building something. Next week, there's going to be a lot of people come through our doors that don't normally come to church. There's, I got a couple phone calls from people uh, on Friday just like, asking about our church and thinking about coming next Sunday because that's when things kind of get into a rhythm. There's going to be lots of people coming through our doors. Who is at the center of our church is going to affect everything we do, everybody we meet, everybody we impact. What are we impacting them with? We need to ask that question as a church. You need to ask that question in your life, in your family. Like, what are you planning to do? What are you doing next week? How is God at the center of that. What's occupying your heart? Before you get to the list, you need to address that. That's what God does in Exodus 20. That's what we need to do in our lives. It's more than what we do. It's who we know. And then who we know changes everything. Next week, we start this new series called Encounters with Jesus. We're going to look at how Jesus interacts with the skeptic, the sinner, the saint. How he answered some of life's biggest questions with those encounters and those conversations. Some questions we still have today, and those stories are still relevant. They still answer our biggest questions. And so we're going to dig into that over eight weeks of what that looks like. Luke 5 is one of them. You see Peter interacting with Jesus for the first significant time, and he realizes that Jesus is God. And he says to that, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. That's his response. And I love this. Jesus says, no, 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 no. We got a lot of things to do. Like, you're going to be on board for that. 
we got a lot of things to do. But if you'll notice, if you read the Gospels, he doesn't just send them out, kick them in the pants, see if he can swim, right? No, he takes time with him. He reveals who he is. He reveals that Peter is one of his. He reveals what he's going to do on his behalf. He shows them that. And then they go on to do a lot. Like this thing called the church, this thing called Christianity, they get all that started, right? That we're still a part of today. Isn't that amazing? But it starts with Jesus is at the center. That's a lot of what we're going to see in this next series that we're going to go through. So think about in your life, your list, what you're going to do, who's at the center, what occupies your heart, what is that for you this morning? Let's consider that as we pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for these men and women. God, I pray this morning as we look at an Old Testament passage that a lot of us are familiar with, God, that we would adore the one true God. We would adore you. It wouldn't be about achievement. It would be about adoration. And that out of that, we would plan our lives around you. God, I pray that where that doesn't happen, that we would repent This morning, even as we respond, we wouldn't think about what everybody else is thinking about us. We wouldn't sing if that's distracting. We would take time this morning to repent, to turn away from those things that are occupying our heart, that are dividing our heart, and we would look to you, the one true God, the Lord, our God, who rescued us. And God, I pray that we would celebrate that we would celebrate the loving kindness that we see in the person and work of Jesus that transforms everything we do. God, I pray as we look at that today, as we look at that and we think about that in our lives, as we look at that over the next eight weeks, that it would transform us. And it wouldn't just stop with us. It would transform this community. It would transform this city for your glory, for our joy. God, we pray that in the name of Jesus. Amen. We're going to respond now. We take communion every Sunday as a church. If you don't know what that is, basically, uh, we won't dismiss you. We're going to sing a few more songs, and you can just come as you feel led. We'll have some bread and wine and juice at these two stations. Uh, You just take the bread. You dip it in the wine or the juice. You can go pray with the people who brought you. You can go pray with uh, your community group. You can go pray with your spouse. You can go pray by yourself. We want to give you the freedom to respond how God is leading you to respond. But as you do that, you need to know you're representing, you're celebrating, you're reflecting on the death of Jesus Christ. His body broken for you, his blood shed for you. That changes everything about us. That he's who you know. If if you know him, that's Jesus. He died for you, he rose again. That's what we celebrate, that's what we reflect on. That's what we would ask for you to reflect on this morning. Who occupies your heart? Is it Jesus or is it something else? Let's reflect on that as we celebrate and sing.